a good leader can can articulate a direction and and build consensus. You know, because one of the fascinating things about the music world is you you, you look at the orchestra, you, you know, the internal constituencies, you know, the board, the staff, the, the artists, the musicians. But then you have all the external, you know, you have the, the press, you have the politicians, you have the, the, the donors, you know, you know, uh, the, the broader uh, set of, of, of donors. I mean, you, you have your, your neighbors, you have all sorts of other, you know, you have the industry, you have other. other and, and so being able to build consensus and, and momentum and, and getting people uh, to you know move and obviously learning from those people not that you, you have the only only way to do something uh, you know that that's what a, a leader can do a leader can move institution. This is the Institute for Music Leadership. Welcome to another episode of Create, Inspire, Lead. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. On today's podcast, we hear from Mark Volpe, the former CEO of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and a monumental figure of leadership in music. An alumnus of the Eastman School of Music, Mark was recently on campus engaging with the current students, so he sat down with IML Director Rachel Roberts to discuss his career, his thoughts on leadership and management, and his approach to creating strong relationships. You're really going to enjoy this fascinating conversation and learn a lot from Mark's depth of experience. For those on the cusp of graduation, you'll get to hear Mark speak again at the 2023 Eastman School of Music Commencement Ceremony on Saturday, May 13th. With that, I'll turn things over to Rachel Roberts. So, Mark, thank you for being here. Thank you for agreeing to this interview. And you've had such an impressive career as a musician and an administrator. Can you give a brief overview of that journey? I was born in Minneapolis to a father who played in the orchestra there for 43 years. So I basically had one advantage. I grew up backstage uh, and, and was that, that was my, my father and mother's world were, were academics and, and professional musicians. So I, I, I got absolutely hooked Early on, I, I uh, played clarinet. I still still play clarinet. I have a, basically three minutes of endurance. I sound good for three minutes, and then, then the drawstring muscles totally collapse, and that's the end. So I, I um, uh, came to the Eastman School after high school and youth orchestra and all that in 75 and had, had four terrific years with a, a man. I mean, one of the things about music school is many of your – uh, listeners know is, is the teacher is is so critical and and Eastman had you know a incredible teacher in Stanley Hasty but also an incredible man you know we were a very close knit uh, family I was the first one to move out of the four kids obviously the oldest maybe not obviously but uh, was the oldest and and I was incredibly homesick and Stan you know had five of his own kids and he would have me over Sunday night he he knew. How, how desperately uh, uh, sad I was about not not being with with the, the family and you know and obviously we were uh, you know my parents were fantastic but we were you know had modest means so I wasn't flying back you know we flew back once you know Christmas there's no no 
Thanksgiving break, no spring break. You, we, we didn't have uh, I had a brother and sister behind me, <laughs> and, and their sister a little farther behind me. So they both went to Northwestern. So uh, you know, uh, expensive schools, uh, great schools, but nonetheless. And I had uh, four years at, at Eastman, uh, and and then I went to Indiana for a grad uh, year, and it was sort of after Hasty, who was the, the great clarinet teacher, was a little disappointing. Uh, I had the basketball. Uh, teaching assistantship, so I, I had to deal with Bobby Knight. I had enough said on that. Uh, and and then, uh, frankly, uh, was went to law school, got a law degree, and was thinking, you know, uh, I was going to be on Wall Street or I was going to be in a big firm, and I just missed being around artists. I missed being around musicians, and so I, I passed on a variety of jobs that were paying roughly eighty to eighty-five thousand, and took a job at barely 20000 as the assistant to the executive director of the Baltimore Symphony. So I had an incredible experience there, and it's, it shows you the role of fate. The guy who hired me in Baltimore uh, had a massive uh, brain trauma and was gone for seven months at Johns Hopkins. And so I was the assistant, and I got thrown into, at the age of 23, 24, you know, running uh, or, you know, trying to run a major orchestra with, with you know, Commissione and David Zimmerman as, as music directors in those first two years. And somehow with, with, with great relationships, frankly, uh, relationships of uh, a bunch of Eastman grads in the Baltimore Symphony, a few people I knew even from IU, Indiana, uh, but there were at least five or six Eastman people, of which I overlap with like three of them. And they were, I, I actually stayed with one, uh, Greg Mulligan, who was here and then and, and was concert master in San Antonio and then went back to, to the Baltimore Symphony. Uh, and and had an incredible run there, and then I get a call from from uh, a few people, including Ken Dayton, the founder of Targets, a little, little store people have probably heard of, and he said, you know, come home, be your dad's boss. <laughs> so all those years I've been denied increases in my allowance came back to haunt my dad. So I I, I went there. Uh, I mean, we had this ritual, uh, and my dad had this place he warmed up. Uh, he had he he had a certain protocol, a certain warm up he did every day, and, and then he would knock on my door. Every day we were together for two years and asked for a raise. <laughs> and he knew once I took the job, he was never going to get an overscale raise. But nonetheless, he, he, he had a good time asking. Uh, and then I, I, I was there for a couple of years, and then I got this intriguing call from, from uh, a gentleman, the vice chair of Chrysler, and then, then uh, candidly, uh, uh, Lee Iacocca, who at that point, you know, before. Trump before Mark Cuban, obviously all these billionaires thinking about running for president. He was thinking of running for president in 84, in the year that Mondale won the Democratic nomination. So I, I, I spent some time with him, got recruited there. And in Detroit, they didn't have a artistic challenge. Yorks was quite good. Uh, it had an urban challenge. So we came up with a whole urban approach. Uh, Detroit's been about urban renewal for since the riots of the late 60s. And so we, we, we did a basically a quarter of a billion dollar development uh, around the hall, building a performing arts high school. I went to every school board meeting for God knows probably two years uh, and and built out the hall, built an office building for the uh, sort of what you know Eastman's done here. Uh, I mean, it's amazing uh, how important Eastman is to, to downtown Rochester, certainly the University of Rochester to the entire uh, ecosystem of, of the, the, the broader Rochester community. But but Eastman in terms of being downtown is, is, is you know, I, I probably the, the key player given other considerations. So I, I did a little bit of that uh, in, in, De- in Detroit and, and candidly wasn't done. I, you know, we, we got this thing launched and then I get a call 
from uh, a cellist, a good, good uh, friend of mine named Yo-Yo Ma. And Yo-Yo said, uh, you know, again, fate. Uh, the guy who ran the um, Boston Symphony very ably, a terrific guy, uh, had a massive coronary and was basically totally incapacitated. He lived for a couple more years, but... And Yo-Yo said, you gotta, you gotta come. And I said, Yo-Yo, you've seen what I'm doing in Detroit. I, it would, I can't abandon this initiative. And he, you know, I, and Yo-Yo and I are pretty much contemporaries in terms of age, so I could kind of push back. And then the phone rang, and it was Isaac Stern. And Isaac, you can't say no to Isaac. Isaac said, the Boston Symphony with Tangwood, with the Pops, you know, with, with, you know, it's, it's, I mean, people don't realize, you know, T- Tanglewood and, and is a hundred buildings on 530 acres. The Boston Symphony actually owns a couple of acres around the hall. You know, it's by far the largest orchestral operation in terms of scope of any orchestra in the world. And, and so, and, and, and arguably, and obviously with bias fully disclosed, the most important orchestra, certainly in the United States. Uh, and, 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 and people can argue that, of course. But any, anyway, I, I, I acquiesced uh, in very, very you know, emotional transition, and, and then I spent 23 years doing a whole variety of things in the Boston Symphony, and now have this great, great uh, privilege and pleasure of, of, of speaking with you, Rachel. As you think about this journey, you know, being at Eastman, going to law school, then Baltimore, Detroit, and in Boston, you've kind of touched on this aspect of fate and of relationships. But can you think of or were there major milestones for you throughout those transitions in terms of the the lessons or turning points that you may have gone through with those organizations? I'll start with Eastman because I, I certainly, you know, had your conventional clarinet lessons and ensemble, and, but I got very active in the student government here. And, and became uh, president of the student, you know, and, and, and sometimes that's a punchline in universities and colleges. And, and, but, but it was an incredibly interesting, uh, I, I learned so much how to manage the various factions, you know, because even within the student population, you know, Eastman's a small school, but they're factions, you know, the, <laughs> the organists hang, hang out with organists, the string players hang out, even though they have different camps and different, you know, studios, and, and, and then the faculty dynamics, and I, I got also involved in some uh, of the politics and the student uh, government realm at, at the University of Rochester. So that that was actually quite, quite helpful. Um, and, and the other, th- uh, other, you know, threshold moments, uh, cer- certainly, you know, uh, deciding I wasn't going to be a lawyer and, and that I was going and, and, and then having this incredible opportunity uh, in Baltimore. And you, and you, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, relationships. You know, when I, uh, I've spent the last uh, couple years talking to various, you know, and have, starting with Eastman, but, but I, was, I spent, you know, three months, uh, I spent three months a year now in Italy at all the major universities there, and, and they, they, you know, what is it, marketing, is it finance, is it artistic? And I said, it's relationships. I mean, if you, you build, and, and I, I say this even in the business schools, I, I, I say, and when you think about our profession, likability matters. I, I mean, in the old days, and, and, you know, you could be, you know, whether it's Reiner or Zell or Tuscanini, you could get away with being a real jerk. And, 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 and I can't ima- imagine. I, I bet you have Tuscanini, who was incredibly smart, and I'm, uh, I'm uh, in a little bit. I was just at his house in Parma, <laughs> like, where he was born. Yeah. You know, if he had to function in today's world, 
you know, even in Italy, he would have to be more respectful, more, more careful, and not to mention his days at, at, at the Met and NBC Orchestra and all of that. And, and so even conductors. I mean, you look at the three great young conductors, and not, not, you know, Yannick, uh, you know, who's music director in Philadelphia and the Met, uh, Gustavo, who's music director in L.A. and heading to New York, uh, obviously Andres Nelson's uh, the Boston Symphony music director who I hired, uh, and, and also music director of the Leipzig Gavon House Orchestra. They're all incredibly, I mean, great conductors, you know, very different. They're great guys. They, they, they are colleagues, you know, as opposed to, you know, the, this notion of, of being the great dictator. And, and, and yeah, so, so likability also in the management realm matters. You know, your approach in Boston is going to be different than your approach in Minnesota, than your approach in Baltimore. And at recognizing, you know, before you have, you know, you know, any sense. I mean, I'm always dubious of people that come in and say, I'm going to do this, this, and that. You don't, if, unless you organically have and authentically been there for 15, 20 years or even longer to understand what you're talking about, that's, that's a tad presumptuous at best and, and somewhat dangerous. So you, you have to understand, you know, the history. You have to understand how everything's connected. You have to understand the various communities, uh, both internal and external, you know, before you can, can, can really assert, you know, a, 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 a vision, you know, but I, and I, I love, Moody had one of the greatest lines when he was hired in the Chicago Symphony because I get this question, what's your vision, what's your vision? And Moody said once to this uh, bunch of reporters, he said, Francis of Assisi had visions, I make plans. And there's a certain, you know, you know Moody can, can, you know, Moody's Moody, but, but uh, I, I, sort of the way I, I, I think, you know, certainly you have to have some sense of where you're going and then how you, how you get there and, and, and everyone, how you bring everyone along uh, and, and recognizing that, that candidly, you don't want to be arrogant because I, I can't tell you how many course corrections or how many modulations, to use a musical term, you make, you know, because you don't know enough, you know, when you start something. I mean, this this project we did in, 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 at Tanglewood, you know, the four buildings we built in the Lindy Center, I mean, that 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 morphed into like five different things, that were, you know, and organically with a lot of feedback from the community, a lot of feedback, you know, uh, and, and so so I'm always dubious of someone that says, I know exactly what to do. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously you have to act. You, you, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I talked about this at various business schools. You know, uh, you, you, you act prematurely or you act with too little information, you're going to make mistakes. Too much information and can actually paralyze you. I mean, you, you see people get paralyzed when there's, so, you know, there's, you have to figure out what's important. You know, in law, dicta, you know, you get rid of all the stuff that, that you know, it's Latin word, you know, you get rid of stuff that's not important. You figure out the four or five major Things. I mean, good politicians figure that out. You know, the, you know. I mean, remember Bill Clinton? It's the economy, stupid. I mean, he, he kept it. You know, I mean, what's more complicated than the U.S. federal government? If you sat there and tried to in public policy, forget it. You ha- you have to break it down, but but you have to figure out what that two or three, what those two or three levers are. I I appreciate hearing you say that, and it kind of transitions into the next topic that I wanted to ask you about is the parallels and differences between leadership and management, right? Um, Because they're absolutely interconnected, but I think they're two separate topics as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain relationships build into this, context builds into this, and having information or not enough like what you said, having too much information could paralyze you as well. Can, can you talk about your own approach to leadership and management? 
Yeah, I, I have to say, you know, the, the expression that the, you know, that doubles in the details. I was never a detailed person, you know, which my, 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 if Stan Hastings were alive, he'd probably tell you, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so much for his articulation, his rhythm, whatever. Uh, I, I was always a big picture, uh, I, I, excited by, by movements, excited by, and so I, I knew, uh, candidly, uh, I always needed a really, really good, you know, chief operating officer or general manager, or whatever, whatever the title was. So when I was going through the crisis in Detroit of, of all the, you know, withdrawn funding and, and then conceiving this thing with, with a few of the, port, you know, you know, families and, you know, getting the Fords and the Fishers and all the big Detroit families, not to mention the governor and the mayor invested in this project, I hired a former general manager of the Chicago Symphony and said, you're going to run the day-to-day, you know, operations. You're going to do the schedule. You know, I'll do programming with the conductors, of course. I never would, you know, abdicate on that front. But but all, all the stuff, you know, you're going to, you know, and I, I certainly would go to, con- I, you know, I love music. I go to concerts. But but I, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to get consumed by what you can get consumed with. And sort of the same thing I did in Boston. I had some fantastic, you know, uh, you know, Kim Nultimi, who's running the Dallas Symphony, uh, Lynn Larson, Tony Fogg. I, I, you know, we had, we had, you know, one of the uh, traps in a lot of orchestra managements is they have no continuity. You know, I mean, like, you know, you know there'd be a, a new CFO every every 20 minutes in the Philadelphia Orchestra, not to pick on the Philadelphia Orchestra. I, I think they've, they've, they've calmed down uh, in that regard. But I had the same, you know, senior team for 20 years, basically, and, and, and until we started retiring and then, you know, Kim got a great job in Dallas or whatever. But she, she spent 20 years, you know, Tony Fogg was there before as the artistic minister before I started, and he's still there. I mean, so you, you had this incredible institutional memory, and you had guys, you know, I, I mean, casting an opera. God help me, you know, if you, you get down. I mean, I, of course, I had great privilege of, you know, Renee Fleming, another Rochester Eastman product. But other than that, I, you know, when you get down to the, you know, the, the 14th or 15th role, <laughs> you know, that's, that's Tony Falk. He, he, got, he knows every voice, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure not every voice, but almost every voice there is in, in Europe and Asia and America, but, but uh, South America, you know, but, but ultimately, uh, you know, that wasn't me. I, and so I, I always was more of a leader than, than a manager, but I knew enough to have really, really good managers as, as partners so, so that I, I, you know, and, you know, if I need to know details, I, I need to know details, right. but, but ultimately I deferred to the people you know, and delegated to the people who were expert in the given discipline. And so can you clarify just a bit, what do you think makes a good manager? And what do you think makes a good leader? A good leader can can articulate a direction and, and build consensus, you know, because one of the fascinating things about the music world is you, you, you look at the orchestra, you, you know, the internal constituencies, you know, the board, the staff, the, the artists, the musicians. But then you have all the external, you know, you have the, the press, you have the politicians, you have the, the, the donors, you know, you know uh, the, the broader uh, set of, of, of donors. I mean, you, you have your, your neighbors, you have all sorts of other, you know, you have the industry, you have other. And, and so being able to build consensus and, and momentum and, and getting people uh, to you know, move and obviously learning from those people, not that you, you have the only, only way to do something. Uh, you know, that, that's what a, a leader can do. A leader can move 
institution, and it's a dynamic marketplace. It's constantly, you know, the rate of change, which we all know, continues to accelerate in technology and all that. So you, you, you can't be static, you know. Uh, a, a great manager is one who covers every detail, who, who you know, if you're on a tour, um, you know, the, the buses are there, the, the plane tickets, you know, the per diems, the, 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 the you know, of course, the execution of uh, you know, the payroll, uh, you know, all of the, all of every detail is, is covered and itineraries are built and they know how to resolve, you know, tensions, you know, in terms of uh, if they're, you know, within, within the ensemble, whatever, uh, they have to have, you know, obviously people skills, you know, I mean, and again, it overlaps. I'm, I'm, I'm not, but, but, you know, that, you know, you don't want me building an itinerary for a tour. I, I could probably do it, but I'd probably miss two or three things just because, you know, I, I, I mean, common sense sometimes kicks in. And a good, you know, manager, I mean, a good manager in marketing, you know, there's a campaign, you know, you, you have the, the, the schedules, you have, you know, what's digital, what, what's print, what, what's, you know, uh, you know, analog, you know, electronic, you know, I mean, a whole, whole thing where, where, you know, they've done all their research, you know, in terms of, of all the demographics, they know all, all, all the zip codes, all that stuff. You know, I, 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 you know, a good manager that has people doing it, but is, is, is putting it all together and, and, and coming out of that, you, you have a, a marketing plan for a season for, you know, whatever. So, so, but, but, you know, that, that person isn't necessarily deciding, you know, what, is getting played when and where and, and why you're doing certain things that that person's executing, you know, he gets, you know, or she gets the you know, raw material and then has to shape it into a campaign. Yeah. Related. I'm endlessly fascinated by organizational culture. I've heard you mention today about how musicians came to you in 2018, how they came back during the pandemic to help work with you to renegotiate their contracts in, in terms of what was needed for the organizational stability. That is unique. I would not say that that's common among a lot of orchestras. And how can you share how you approach developing a culture to get the organization to be so collaborative in that way? What, what goes into building an organizational culture and, and how do you maintain that for the long haul? Yeah, it, it, it starts with relationships and, and to go specific to the labor environment, uh, I, I preach this. I, all the younger managers, you know, oh my God, negotiations, you know, three-year contract, four-year contract. I said, if you're not doing labor dynamics and labor relations every day, it's too late. If you, if you, all of a sudden we have a contract that's expiring in September. What do we do? Too late. I, I mean, you'll get through it and contracts settle and even, you know, contentious situations, you know, typically settle. But, but you know, you, you've, you've wasted a lot of energy. And, and so, I, what, you know, first you have to define, you know, what, what culture means. And, and for me, you know, if you have to write it down, good luck. I mean, because it's, it's – basically understood it's implicit it's it's the first thing i think of every morning when i was running things you know how how do how do the various parts relate to each other how how do we you know have a, a culture where where there's there's respect 
where you don't have that. And, and, and inherently, there's always tension in the staff because the development people make more money, especially in a place like Boston where, where for development people you're competing with Harvard and MIT and BU and you know, Mass General and all that. So there's always a little bit, you know, the marketing people and the finance people and, you know, and, they, uh, you know, and, and, and what was interesting is the younger generation shares inf- salary information. We never, you know, when I'm, I'm 65 going to 66. We would never share salary information, but everyone knows what everyone gets paid now. You know, and, you know, the top salaries are always in the, you know, 990s, but I'm talking about, you know, mid-level, lower level, entry level, whatever you want to call it. How do you overcome that and, and you know, explain there's a market and, and not have, you know, uh, you know intense robberies recognizing you can only do so much. But, ten, you know, culture is something, you know, the culture of philanthropy. How, 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 how do you, I, I always, you know, I, the proudest, one of the proudest moments, and it's below the radar screen. The Boston Symphony, every member of the orchestra contributes to the annual fund, at least $200. And the way we got them to even, you know, think about it, there were people that were, were, were obviously contributing, but 100%, $200, minimum of $200. And it was basically you get to help shape the next generation of musicians, not, through your te- not only through your teaching, but, but I think I told them you should do a fellowship at the Tagwood Music Center, $20,000. 100 pl- players in New York City, 200 bucks. A person, you know, they did a fellowship, and they're so proud of it. They, you know, and that, that's a big deal. Who gets that fellowship, you know? And and so so, you know, part of what I've done with the culture. I mean, cultural philanthropy is actually a subset of, of the broader institutional culture. But everyone owns the fundraising. You know, and I, I'm preaching this in Italy, which is very interesting. I mean, La Scala, Piccolo Theater, uh, Biennale, and, and Venice. You know, you know, the artists. Oh my, God, the, the, you know, I. The greatest advocates. I mean, what people, when I'm out with donors, you know, when I bring a conductor or I bring a musician, you know, they're, they're, you know I mean, a few of them are incredibly articulate and could make an ass, but, you know, normally that's my job or, you know, we have some, you know board member or whatever. But, but just having them, you know, I think there were probably eight, ten musicians on the annual fund committee, which we, we, we built so that they own the, you know, the, the you know, the, 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 that, that, that function. I mean, I, I can't speak to what's going on now. I'm just talking about my 23 years there, where they were very active. You know, we did this Lindy project. I wanted to make sure they understood the four buildings were for the school, for a learning institute, you know, for them to use, you know, for their own uh, ensemble work. And, and you know, because if you spend money on capital, well, why aren't you spending it on, on faculty or why aren't you spending it on, on, on you know, uh, on musician salaries and all of that? So, you, you, you I mean, communication is critical trust is 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 critical and and again it's not something you know we would talk about it but we never i never sat there and said here's our culture you know piece of paper it's all there i mean if if it's not internalized if it's you know if it's not understood you 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 don't have it and where do you think that comes from I mean, I, I was just having this debate with my class earlier this week and, and getting them to think through where culture comes from. I mean, my my opinion is it has to be set by somebody but enacted by everybody. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to know I, what you I, think. I think it, I'd go one step farther back. You know, we all have our own personal experiences. We all have our family histories. We all have where we come from. You know, you come from Iowa. I come from Minnesota. There, there is a difference in Midwest, you know, and, 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 you know, I spent a lot of time in, you know, Boston, New York. 
uh, I'm less familiar with the West Coast. I'm learning Italy, which is a completely different world. Uh, so, so uh, you know, it, 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 you start with that. Obviously, someone has to take the initiative and someone has to. I mean, sometimes it's spoken, but many times it's not spoken. You know, and, and it also relates to everything going around you at that moment. I mean, you know, we're, you know part of the trap in, in the arts is, is, you know, what, what we do requires such focus, such concentration. You know, you're sitting in a practice room for five hours, four hours, eight, I'm going to make up a number, you know, and, and it's, there's a kind of an inward focus, introspection, you know, but ultimately you have to, you know, you have to be aware of the external world, and that helps shape, you know, you can sit there and, and outline something, this is the culture, but if it's totally disconnected to everything going around you, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna resonate. It's not it's not gonna work. So ultimately, it's got to be related. Like and and you know, pop culture influences what we do. You know, the sports world. You know, I I one of the things I did. You know, uh, is is what's big in Boston. You live there. Sports. You know, Red Sox, Patriots. Every time the Red Sox were in the World Series, there we our brass section and our chorus. We did the Star Spangled Banner. You know, you know, in L.A., it's a, it's a pop star. They would never even, you know, it was the Boston Pops or the Boston Symphony Brass Section. You can't have, you can't have a you know, string quartet in the. <laughs> we played the Super Bowl. We played the NBA championship. Uh, the the uh, big hockey team, the whole Pops plays a whole concert. Uh, it's all lip sync because they have to pre-record it in the hall out on, on Fenway. You know, when they have that January first. You know, that. so part of the culture of of Boston, you know, sports is so dominant. You know that I I took the orchestra and made it part of that not now of course you know we still go back to the hall and play Shostakovich and all that but but we were we were connected to everything going on in Boston when the Democratic Convention was in Boston 2000 was it eight we we played four concerts for it I mean not just for Kennedy for celebrating his 40 years in the Senate but anything that happened that was civically important you know what's the biggest congregation of people in Boston every year July 4th half a million people Boston pops you know, so I, I, I and that ha- that preceded me, but I went beyond that and said we want to capture every civic, you know, the mayor's inaugurations. I went to Menino, you know, I, 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 Marty Walsh did his State of the City speech before he went off to become labor secretary. Now he's running the NHL Players Association. But, but uh, I went to him and said, how about doing the State of the City in, in the hall? And I would, I always introduce. I was one of the introducers of the mayor, you know, and just connecting the orchestra to the broader community and, and that and that's that was part of the ethos that was part of the culture of that that you know yeah of course you know you, that's one of the traps too many cultural institutions are you know elite perceived to be whether they are or not that's a different question effete elitist you know pick a word you know and and so and and there is something i i you know there was a guy president of how was his name fred star wrote in praise of elitism you know i mean elitism now has such a negative connotation and is loaded and, and you got to be careful you know that being said being elite at something I mean uh, you've done an incredible job with your leadership program here but there are parts of Eastman that elite wouldn't be the wrong w- word you know and good parts of Eastman you know you know because it's one of the great music schools you know period and 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 so you, you that's not what you lead with <laughs> but 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 you, you you know there is something to be said and and you know we were talking last night at dinner you know, uh, the, your, your faculty, the, the musicians of the great orchestras of, of the United States, you know, they'll, they'll help, you know, in, in a tough time on salary. Or, or But you start talking about compromising the artistic ideals and, the, you know, the pedagogic ideals you would have at, at Eastman. They're going to fight that, in, and, and good for them, you know, to, to the end. So you are 
a master fundraiser. You have just written a book about to be released. Can you quantify how much you've raised throughout your career? I, I, I got these numbers from the development office, so I don't, I, I don't know how accurate. But they, they calculated my tenure uh, at, at uh, 23 years, we raised roughly $850 million uh, uh, and then another hundred million dollars in corporate sponsorships. So just just under a billion dollars. Yeah. In Detroit, we, we raised another couple hundred million dollars. So I, you know, I, I raised over a billion dollars directly or indirectly. Yeah. I mean, and and tell us about your book that you've written, soon to be released this summer. It, it's it's very interesting. I was approached by uh, Italian professors because what's happening in, in, in Italy and in France and Spain, it's happening big time in the UK. If you've been reading the news about the BBC, there's a real scaling back of public sector funding. Right. Uh, uh, and, and, and so we, we have always had a system in America, you know, like, like medicine, like education, like social services, that certain activities are deemed to be of, 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 of significance that, that can't, uh, frankly, make it in the market and, and are worthy of, of, of tax subsidy through, you know, tax exempt status where people donating can, can uh, take, you know, obviously take a deduction on their taxes if they itemize and, and therefore, you know, it's, it's a way of indirectly, the government indirectly subsidizing activities like culture, education, social service, all of that. In, in Europe, it's been mostly direct, you know, big, big, you know, the, the budget, you know, the NEA equivalent uh, in France, the budget is about 41 Billion dollars. The NEA's budget is about 150 million or something like that. that. Yeah, right around that. there. Yeah, you 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 would know more than I. Italy's like 3.8 billion. I mean, that's the that's not doesn't include the the uh, the city budgets for arts and the and the uh, provincial government subsidy of arts as well. So they're they're starting to scale back at every level. So there there is a certain, I won't say panic yet, but significant concern on all the major institutions that that they're going to have to go to the private sector. And so they've they, in Italy five years ago they changed the tax code to allow for, you know, some uh, deductibility of gifts, but that yet they don't have a culture of philanthropy. So so I was approached by the, the probably the leading business school in Italy, uh, to do some teaching, but also, uh, you know, write a book. And of course my bias is, is America. You know, so it's ten chapters. Uh, it's basically going to be used as a textbook. Uh, it's already been used. They, they did a, I don't know how the technology works, but they allowed people to have access in Berlin, Rome, and, and, and Milan. They used it this year uh, in, in, in unedited, you know, God help them, <laughs> a lot of typos, uh, edited form that they couldn't download, but they could stream. I don't, I, again, I'm sure any kind of sophisticated kid could probably figure out how to bust through that and download it. But anyhow, because so, it wasn't available yet, but they wanted to use it. So they've been using it there. And it's it, it's basically outlining, you know, uh, I mean, it takes the the basic stuff, corporate, individual, you know, private, how to run a campaign, uh, how to how to establish a culture of philanthropy, you know, uh, digital fundraising, which is a chapter I didn't write <laughs> for good reason. It's not an area I have any expertise in, you know, and and so so uh, it, it's already uh, going to be used all over Italy, and and uh, we had contributors uh, from from Spain, from from uh, France, from Italy, of course. Uh, uh, from America, uh, uh, a few few Americans contributed. So so ho- hopefully you know. And what was interesting, and you know much more than I, but but there are a lot of books. Indiana University has had a big philanthropy program for for and study and and all that. But but there are very few things written specifically about fundraising for the arts. So this is 328 pages. 
and and uh, it'll be released, I think, in July. So thank, th yeah. So, so thank you for the opportunity to, to promote the book. Well, we're looking forward yeah. to reading it and sharing it here with our students as well. Two last questions for you. The first, what advice do you have for musicians who are embarking on their careers today? I mean, the old Mark and the glib Mark would have said practice. But frankly, I, I'm finding, not just here, it was very interesting in Europe, uh, and you, 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 are, you are the leader. What you've done here is, 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 is you know, incredibly impressive, Rachel, and obviously being, building on with James and, you know, uh, you're, you're part right. of the legacy. Uh, mm -hmm. and I, I, but but not, not to embarrass you, but I, I always encourage musicians, obviously you got to be able to play your instrument, you know, or sing or whatever, you know. But, but I, I, I think the people who have curiosity about other things – tend to be more content in their professional endeavors, you know, and, 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 and so I always encourage music students to have a broader experience, you know, than to, 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 to take other types of classes and not just in the arts, not, not just, you know, literature or poetry. I mean, just to, to really ultimately, you know, learn about the world but also, if you're going to be a musician and want to make, you know, a profession out of it, you got to have a, some sense of how the business works. You know, it's it's so interesting. You know, uh, my experience in places like Eastman and a few of the other, you know, music schools that are attached to a university that, ha and then the pure conservatories. And and I really, uh, fear is too strong a word, but I really am concerned about the conservatory students who aren't going to win a New York Philharmonic, a Chicago Symphony, a Boston Symphony audition, or a St. Louis or Minnesota or Dallas or what you name an orchestra. Uh, you know, that just, you know, I mean, look, when you're a clarinet player, you know, or you're a flute player, there are four jobs per orchestra. There are 15 to 20 orchestras that pay, you know, so you're talking a living wage, a living wage, you're talking 80 positions in the country, and unlike halfbacks and football teams or running backs that blow out knee and they're done in three point, you know, my, my experience with flute players is they tend to last 30, 35, 40 years, so the turnover, at least. yeah, in the, in the clarinet, clarinet world, you know, the turnover, I mean, there was no turnover in the Boston Symphony clarinet section until you very successfully recruited Michael Wayne, who's a fantastic clarinet player, a phenomenal clarinet player, and, a, and obviously a very good teacher. So that was the first opening they had, you know, and I was there 23 years, you know, and it, it took, you know, and, and, and so, so if you wanted to be in the Boston Symphony and you're a clarinet player, so you're competing against 20 classes of, of, of you know, I mean, uh, obviously Eastman's got a great woodwind department, but there are other music schools in the world, <laughs> you know, other music, you know, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of kids wanting the same job, you know, and so I, I you know, one of the things I tell kids you know, the Boston Symphony, my last couple of years pre-pandemic, employed 1,300 people, of which about 350 were full-time, of which 100 are on stage. So those other 250 full-time people, they're probably 50 to 100 music majors easily, more than that, because the artistics have all music majors, but, but marketing probably half, you know, development maybe a third, you know, finance even a, a few, uh, operations, mostly all musicians, you know, and, and with degrees from, from you know, and and so I, I, I encourage people uh, to 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 learn something 
about the business. And one of the things we do at the Tangwood Music Center, 155 fellows, about 30 or 40 of them, we have a class. I do the opening class explaining governance and, and leadership and management. We bring in the head of the marketing team. You know, she talks about marketing. You know, the personal manager talks about labor dynamics. That's unfamiliar to most students. The finance person talks about that. Uh, you know, how to how to you know how an endowment works. What what's an endowment? You know, uh, I mean, in Italy, I, I go I use the word endowment without realizing they don't have them. You know, so you have to sit there and back up and you know define what you're what you're talking about. So I encourage students to obviously play their instrument at the highest level they can, but also become versed in the business and have a sense of what's going on in the world, you know, and, 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 and be connected. Uh, you know, and, and, and the other thing I tell them is consistent with our earlier conversation. You know, I say this, I start out every, when I did the convocation at, at uh, Tangwood Music Center, you know, which is mostly graduates, a lot of, you know, people from East, I say, you know, this class, you're going to be, you know, You'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of weddings, but but beyond you know that that's uh, an aside. You're gonna have this, these relationships. The people you go to Eastman in your class, you know, the hundred or whatever, or eighty five, whatever the number is nowadays, you know, and then the classes around you. You're gonna have those relationships for for years, and you know, and 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 so you know, recognizing you know how you treat each other really matters. Well, my last question for you: What's your favorite part of being back at Eastman? To bring back any memories from when you were a oh, student? I, I think I'm always blown away. We were there last night at the concert, Rachel. You know, I mean, and again, when I was here, the theater wasn't that good acoustically. Now it's so much better, you know. And I think you have one of the great, you know, I mean, you have a great culture, but, you, uh, but the performing, I mean, Kilburn Hall is one of the most beautiful rooms in the country of any kind. <laughs> you know, it is such, you know, and so, you know, what, what I, I like about Eastman is, is, you know, from going, dating me, going back to the 70s, you know, those, those two spaces. Now you have, you know, you, you took me on a tour. There are other, other spaces now, but I'm obviously, you know, emotionally more connected to, to the ones that, that existed. And the other thing, you know, is, is being around, like, after the concert last night. And I don't know any of these kids, you know. The joy, and, and, and they just accomplished, you know, two orchestras played, you know, each one half of a concert. Uh, and 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 just walking through the corridor with you on the way, you know, to, to your car and to to my hotel was was just felt great. I mean that 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 reminded me, you know, the Boston Symphony plays close to three hundred concerts a year. When you figure Tangwood Pop Symphony, you know, and many you know, many of them are quite special, but some aren't. You know, it's, and that's true of New York, that's true of Chicago, that's true of Philadelphia, that's true of San Francisco, Minnesota, you know. And, and, and so, and when you're playing, you know, the program four or five times, you know, if it's a hot conductor and, and, you know, and, you know, Renee's in great shape saying, you know, whatever, you can have, you can get a buzz going. But a lot of times it's, you know, and, and they play at a high professional level. I'm not, but, but, you know, that's, that's why I like college basketball, you know. Uh, you know, when I was home to see my, my folks after being in Italy for three months, I went to a Minnesota Gopher game, you know, Big Ten game. It was great. The level doesn't compare to the Celtics, but it was much more interesting and much more fun because the enthusiasm and the energy was so much, you know, and, 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 you know, NBA, you know, until the playoffs, my God, you know, they, they just want to get through these games, you know, so, so, but you, you, I, I respond to energy and the energy last night during on stage, but also 
after the concert, you could you could just feel it walking. You know, and we we walked through what it take forty five seconds to walk through the corridor, or whatever. Not minute. even that. Not even yeah. that. Yeah, it felt great. Yeah. Mark, thank you for being back here at Eastman. And thank you, too, for being our graduation speaker yeah, this year. Yeah, looking forward to it. So excited to have you back, and, and uh, thanks for sharing your time. Today's episode was hosted by IML Director Rachel Roberts. The episode was produced by Kelly Jetsum. The music was written and produced by Stephen Bigner, Alexis Overman, and myself. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.